0: This episode is brought to you by Bunnieslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter and don't get sick. BunnySlippers.com, they've got those cool, wooly, Highland cow slippers that everyone thinks are super cool. They're all shaggy and wooly and gosh darn it, don't they keep your feet warm. Also, found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult movies. Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by them and whoever else our sponsor is and by the folks who listen to it, you. Want to help out the show? Get your name mentioned in the credits? Contact me in social media so I know because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of this stuff. But uh, paypal.me slash pgttcmcom Look for how to shop, be a patron, listen to all the episodes, or all the episodes that are available currently, and find out more about the show. Hey everyone, it's me, DB Spitzer. Uh, I'm I'm super sick. I've been out of work for a couple of days because I've been so sick. Um, I've been kind of bedridden. I don't have the coronavirus. I know I live in Portland and I take mass transit everywhere. Um, I've been sick for a while, and I've just been pushing it too hard, and, you know, three podcasts, two jobs, and everything else that I've got going on, but anyway, so, um, that doesn't mean I'm gonna slow down on podcasts or anything else, I'm just gonna try and take it easy and other stuff, so, yeah, um have my my computer next to me in bed so i decided to do this because i haven't been able to get into the studio for a bit but i have this laptop here so sorry about the audio quality and if you say hey what audio quality oh sorry for the audio quality in general all right uh remember you can find the show at any podcatchers that you know and recommend it to your friends if you know something to listen to and you know just just tell them to skip the first three minutes i always set up the first three minutes for uh for this part and then that's it all right well thank you so much everyone for listening to black clock audio tales and our monthly show people's guide to the cthulhu mythos articulate warbling dave's corner of the podcast uh dave's underground goat shenanigans and all that kind of fun stuff thank you again so much and uh this this month is uh Nikolai Uh Gogol. So enjoy enjoy enjoy.
1: Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilovich Gogol translated by DJ Hogart Part one chapter six read by gergana Mitevo Chichikov's amusement at the peasant's outburst prevented him from noticing that he had reached the center of a large and populous village but presently a violent jolt aroused him to the fact that he was driving over wooden pavements of a kind compared with which the cobblestones of the town had been as nothing. Like the keys of a piano, the planks kept rising and falling, and unguarded passage over them entailed either a bump on the back of the neck, or a bruise on the forehead, or a bite on the tip of one's tongue. At the same time, Chichikov noticed a look of decay about the buildings of the village. The beams of the huts had grown dark with age, many of their roofs were riddled with holes, others had but a tile of the roof remaining, and yet others were reduced to the rib-like framework of the same. It would seem as though the inhabitants themselves had removed the lats and traverses, on the very natural plea that the huts were no protection against the rain, and therefore, since the latter entered in bucketfuls, there was no particular object to be gained by sitting in such huts, when all the time there was the tavern and the high road and other places to resort to. Suddenly a woman appeared from an outbuilding, apparently the housekeeper of the mansion, but so roughly and dirtily dressed as almost to seem indistinguishable from a man. Chichikov inquired for the master of the place. He is not at home she replied almost before her interlocutor had had time to finish. Then she added, ''What do you want with him?'' ''I have some business to do,'' said Chichikov. ''Then pray walk into the house,'' the woman advised. Then she turned upon him a bag that was smeared with flour and had a long slit in the lower portion of its covering. Entering a large dark hole, which reeked like a tomb he passed into an equally dark parlor that was lighted only by such rays as contrived to filter through a track under the door. When Chichikov opened the door in question, the spectacle of the untidiness within struck him almost with amazement. It would seem that the floor was never washed, and that the room was used as a receptacle for every conceivable kind of furniture. On a table stood a ragged chair, with beside it a clock minus a pendulum, and covered all over with cobwebs. Against the wall lent a cupboard full of old silver, glassware and china. On a writing table inlaid with mother of pearl, which in places had broken away and left behind it a number of yellow grooves stuffed with putty, lay a pile of finely written manuscripts. An overturned marble press, turning green, an ancient book in a leather cover with red edges, a lemon dried and shrunken to the dimensions of a hazelnut, the broken arm of a chair, a tumbler containing the dregs of some liquid and three flies the whole covered over with a sheet of notepaper, a pile of rags two ink-encrusted pens and a yellow toothpick with which the master of the house had picked his teeth apparently at least before the coming of the french to moscow as for the walls they were hung with a medley of pictures Among the latter was a long engraving of a battle scene, wherein soldiers in three-cornered hats were brandishing huge drums and slender lances. It lacked a glass and was set in a frame ornamented with bronze fretwork and bronze corner rings. Beside it hung a, a huge grimly oil painting, representative of some flowers and fruit, half a watermelon, a boar's head and a pendant form of a dead wild duck attached to the ceiling there was a chandelier in a holland covering the covering so dusty as closely to resemble a huge cocoon enclosing a caterpillar lastly in one corner of the room lay a pile of articles which had evidently been unjudged unworthy of a place on the table yet what the pile consisted of it would have been difficult to say seeing that the dust on the same was so thick that any hand which touched it would have at once resembled a glove Permanently protruding from the pile was the shaft of a wooden spade, and the antiquated sole of a shoe. Never would one have supposed that a living creature had tenanted the room, were it not that the presence of such a creature was betrayed by the spectacle of an old nightcap resting on the table. Whilst Chichikov was gazing at this extraordinary mess, a side door opened and there entered the housekeeper who had met him near the outbuildings. But now Chichikov perceived this person to be a man, rather than a woman, since a female housekeeper would have had no beard to shave, whereas the chin of the newcomer, with the lower portion of its cheeks, strongly resembled the curry comb which is used for grooming horses. Chichikov assumed the questioning air, and waited to hear what the housekeeper might have to say. The housekeeper did the same. At length, surprised at the misunderstanding, Chichikov decided to ask the first question. ''Is the master at home?'' he inquired. ''Yes?'' replied the person addressed. ''Then where is he?'' continued Chichikov. ''Are you blind, my good sir?'' retorted the other. ''I am the master.'' Involuntarily, our hero stared and stared. During his travels, it had befallen him to meet various types of men. Some of them it may be types which you and I have never encountered, but even to Chichikov this particular species was new.'' in the old man's face there was nothing very special it was much like the wizened face of many other dotard save that the chin was so greatly projected that whenever he spoke he was forced to wipe it with a handkerchief to avoid dribbling and that his small eyes were not yet grown dull but twinkled under their overhanging brows like the eyes of mice when with attentive ears and sensitive whiskers they sniffed the air and peer forth from their holes to see whether a cat or a boy may not be in the vicinity. No, the most noticeable feature about the man was his clothes. In no way could it have been guessed of what his coat was made, for both its sleeves and its skirts were so ragged and filthy as to defy description. While instead of two posterior tails, there dangled four of those appendages, with projecting from them a torn newspaper. Also, around his neck there was wrapped something which might have been a stocking, a garter, or a stomacher, but was certainly not a tie. In short, had Chichikov chance to encounter him at the church door, he would have bestowed upon him a copper or two, for to do our hero justice he had a sympathetic heart and never refrained from presenting a beggar with alms. But in the present case, there was standing before him not a mendicant, but a landowner, and a landowner possessed of fully a thousand serfs, the superior of all his neighbors in wealth of flour and grain, and the owner of storehouses and so forth, that were crammed with homespun cloth and linen, tanned and undressed sheepskins, dried fish, and every conceivable species of produce. Nevertheless, such a phenomenon is rare in Russia, where the tendency is rather to prodigality than to parsimony. For several minutes, Plushkin stood mute, while Chichikov remained so dazed with the appearance of the coast and everything else in the room that he too could not begin a conversation, but stood wondering how best to find words in which to explain the object of his visit. For a while, he thought of expressing himself to the effect that, having heard so much of his host's benevolence and other rare qualities of spirit, he had considered it his duty to come and pay a tribute of respect. But presently even he came to the conclusion that this would be overdoing the thing, and after another glance round the room, decided that the phrase benevolence and other rare qualities of spirit might to the advantage give place to economy and genius for method. Accordingly the speech, mentally composed, he said aloud that, having heard of Plushkin's talents for thrifty and systematic management, he had considered himself bound to make the acquaintance of his host and to present him with his personal compliments. I need hardly say that Chichikov could easily have alleged a better reason, had any better one happened at the moment to have come to his head. With toothless gums, Plushkin murmured something in reply, but nothing is known as to its precise terms beyond that it included a statement that the devil was at liberty to fly away with Chichikov's sentiments. However, the laws of Russian hospitality do not permit even of a miser infringing their rules. "'wherefore Plushkin added to the foregoing a more civil invitation to be seated. "'It is long since I last received a visitor,' he went on. "'Also, I feel bound to say that I can see little good in their coming. "'Once introduced the abominable custom of folk pay calls, "'and forward there will ensue such a ruin to the management of estates "'that landowners will be forced to feed their horses on hay. "'Not for a long, long time have I eaten a meal away from home,' "'although my own kitchen is a poor one "'and has its chimney in such a state that, "'were it to become overheated, it would instantly catch fire.' "'What a brute!' thought Chichikov. "'I am lucky to have got through so much pastry "'and stuffed shoulder of mutton at Sabakevich's. "'Also,' went on Plushkin, "'I am ashamed to say that hardly a wisp of fodder does the place contain. "'But how can I get fodder? "'My lands are small.' "'and the peasantry lazy fellows hate work "'and think of nothing but the tavern. "'In the end, therefore, I shall be forced to go "'and spend my old age in roaming about the world.' "'But I have heard, I have been told "'that you possessed over a thousand serfs,' said Chichikov. "'Who told you that?' "'No matter who it was, "'you would have been justified in giving him the lie. "'He must have been a jester who wanted to make a fool of you.' "'A thousand souls, indeed!' Why, just reckon the taxes on them, and see what there would be left. For those three years, that accursed fever has been killing off my serfs wholesale. Wholesale, you say? Echoed Chichikov, grantly interested. Yes, wholesale, replied the old man. Then might I ask you the exact number? Fully eighty? Surely not. But it is so... Then might I ask whether it is from the date of the last census revision that you are reckoning these souls? Yes, damn it. And since that date, I have been bled for taxes upon a hundred and twenty souls in all. Indeed, upon a hundred and twenty souls in all. And Chichikov's surprise and elation were such that, this said, he remained sitting open-mouthed. Yes, good, sir, replied Plushkin. I am too old to tell you lies for I have been, I have passed my seventeenth year. Somehow he seemed to have taken offense at Chichikov's almost joyous exclamation, wherefore the guest hastened to heave a profound sigh and to observe that he sympathized to the full with his host's misfortunes. But sympathy does not put anything into one's pocket, retorted Plushkin. For instance, I have a kinsman who is constantly plaguing me. He a captain in the army. Tame him. And all day he does nothing but call me dear uncle and kiss my hand and express sympathy until I'm forced to stop my ears. You see, he has squandered all his money upon his brother officers, as well as made a fool of himself with an actress. So now he spends his time in telling me that he has a sympathetic heart. Chichikov hastened to explain that his sympathy had nothing in common with the captain's, since he dealt not in empty words alone, But in actual deeds, in proof of which he was ready then and there, for the purpose of cutting the matter short, and of dispensing with circumlocution, to transfer to himself the obligation of paying the taxes, due upon such serfs, as Plushkin had said in the unfortunate manner, just described departed this world. The proposal seemed to astonish Plushkin, for he sat staring open-eyed. At length he inquired, "'My dear sir, have you seen military service?' "'No,' replied the other wearily. "'But I have been a member of the civil service.' "'Oh, of the civil service.' "'And Plushkin sat moving his lips as though he were chewing something. "'But what of your proposal?' he added presently. "'Are you prepared to lose by it?' "'Yes, certainly. "'If thereby I can please you.' "'My dear sir!' my good benefactor!" In his delight Plushkin lost sight of the fact that his nose was caked with snuff of the consistency of thick coffee, and that his coat had parted in front and was disclosing some very unseemly underclothing. "What comfort you have brought to an old man! Yes, as God is my witness!" For the moment he could say no more, yet barely a minute had elapsed before this instantaneously aroused emotion had, as instantaneously disappeared from his wooden features once more they assumed the careworn expression and he even wiped his face with his handkerchief then rolled it into a ball and rubbed it to and fro against his upper lip if it will not annoy you again to state the proposal he went on what you undertake to do is to pay the annual tax upon these souls and to remit the money either to me or to the Treasury yes that is how it shall be done we will draw up a deed of purchase as though the souls were still alive and you had sold them to myself quite so a deed of purchase echoed plushkin once more relapsing into thought and the chewing motion of the lips but a deed of such a kind will entail certain expenses and lawyers are so devoid of conscience in fact so extortionate is their avarice that they will charge one half a ruble and then a sack of flour and then a whole wagon load of meal i wonder that no one has yet called attention to the system upon that chichikov intimated that out of respect for his host he himself would bear the cost of the transfer of souls this led plushkin to conclude that his guest must be the kind of unconscionable fool who while pretending to have been a member of the civil service has in reality served in the army and run after actresses, wherefore the old man no longer disguised his delight, but called down blessings alike upon Chichikov's head and upon those of his children. He had never even inquired whether Chichikov possessed a family. Next he shuffled to the window and, tapping one of its panes, shouted the name of Proshka. Immediately someone ran quickly into the hall and, after much stamping of feet, burst into the room. This was Proshka. A 13-year-old youngster who was shod with boots of such dimensions as almost to engulf his legs as he walked. The reason why he had entered the shroud was that Plushkin only kept one pair of boots for the whole of his domestic staff. This universal pair was stationed in the hall of the mansion so that any servant who was summoned to the house might don the set boots after wading barefooted through the mud of the courtyard and entered the parlor dry shod, subsequently leaving the boots where he had found them, and departing in his former barefooted condition. Indeed, had anyone, on a slushy winter's morning, glanced from a window into the said courtyard, he would have seen Plushkin's servitors performing salutary feats, worthy of the most vigorous of stage dancers. Look at that boy's face, said Plushkin to Chichikov as he pointed to Prashka. It is stupid enough, yet... Lay another anything aside, and in the trice he would have stolen it. Well, my lad, what do you want? He paused a moment or two, but Proshka made no reply. Come, come, went the old man. Set out the samovar, and then give Mavra the key to the storeroom. Here it is. And tell her to get out some loaf of sugar for tea. Here. Wait another moment, fool. Is the devil in your legs that you itch so to be off? Listen to what more I have to tell you. Tell Mavra that the sugar on the outside of the loaf has gone bad, so that she must scrape it off with a knife and not throw away the scrapings, but give them to the poultry. Also, see that you yourself don't go into the storeroom, or I will give you a birching that you won't care for. Your appetite is good enough already, but a better one won't hurt you. Don't even try to go into the storeroom, for I shall be watching you from this window. You see, the old man added to Chichikov, one can never trust these fellows. Presently, when Proshka and the Boots had departed, he fell to gazing at his guest with an equally distrustful air, since certain features in Chichikov's benevolence now struck him as a little open to question, and he had begun to think to himself, After all, the devil only knows who he is, whether a braggart like most of these pentriffs, or a fellow who is lying merely in order to get some tea out of me. Finally, his circumspection, combined with a desire to test his guest, led him to remark that it might be well to complete the transaction immediately, since he had not over much confidence in humanity, seeing that a man might be alive today and dead tomorrow. To this, Chichikov assented readily enough, merely adding that he should like first of all to be furnished with a list of the dead souls. This reassured Plushkin as to his guests an intention of doing business, so he got out his keys, approached the cupboard, and having pulled back the door, rummaged among the cups and glasses with which it was filled. At length he said, I cannot find it now, but I used to possess a splendid bottle of liquor. Probably the servants have drank it all, for they are such thieves. Oh no, perhaps this is it? Looking up, Chichikov saw that Plushkin had extracted a decanter coated with dust. My late wife made the stuff, went on the old man. But that rascal of a housekeeper went and threw away a lot of it, and never even replaced the stopper. Consequently, bugs and other nasty creatures got into the decanter. But I cleaned it out, and now begged to offer you a glassful. The idea of a drink from such a receptacle was too much for Chichikov so he excused himself on the ground that he had just had luncheon. You have just had luncheon? he re-echoed Plushkin. Now that shows how invariably one can tell a man of good society, wheresoever one may be. A man of that kind never eats anything, he always says that he has had enough. Very different that from the ways of a rogue, whom one can never satisfy, however much one may give him. For instance, that captain of mine is constantly begging me to let him have a meal, though he is about as much my nephew as I am his grandfather. As it happens, there is never a bite of anything in the house, so he has to go away empty. But about the list of those good-for-nothing souls... I happen to possess such a list, since I have drawn one up in the readiness for the next revision. With that, Plushkin donned his spectacles, and once more started to rummage in the cupboard. And to smother his guest with dust as he untied successive packages of papers, so much so that his victim burst out sneezing. Finally, he extracted a much scribbled document, in which the names of the deceased peasants lay as close-packed as a cloud of midgets. For there was a hundred and twenty of them in all. Chichikov grinned with joy at the sight of the multitude. Stuffing the list into his pocket, he remarked that to complete the transaction, it would be necessary to return to the town. To the town? repeated Plushkin. But why? Moreover, how could I leave the house? Seeing that every one of my servants is either a thief or a rogue, day by day they pilfer things until soon I shall have not a single coat to hang on my back. Then you possess acquaintances in the town? Acquaintances? No. Every acquaintance whom I have ever possessed has either left me or is dead. But stop a moment. I do know the president of the council. Even in my old age he has once or twice come to visit me, for he and I used to be schoolfellows and to go climbing walls together. Yes, he might do know. Shall I write him a letter? By all means. Yes, he might know well, for we were friends together at school. Over Plushkin's wooden features there had gleamed a ray of warmth. A ray which expressed, if not feeling, at all events, feelings pale reflection. Just such a phenomenon may be witnessed when, for a brief moment, a drowning man makes a last reappearance on the surface of a river, and there rises from the crowd lining, the banks of a cry of hope that even yet the exhausted hands may clutch the rope which has been thrown him, may clutch it before the surface of the unstable element shall have resumed forever its calm dread vacuity. But the hope is short-lived and the hands disappear. Even so did Plushkin's face, after its momentary manifestation of feeling, become meaner and more insensible than ever there used to be a sheet of clean writing-paper lying on the table he went on but where it is now i cannot think that comes of my servants being such rascals with that he fell into looking also under the table as well as to hurrying about with cries of mavra mavra at length the call was answered by a woman with a plateful of the sugar of which mention has been made whereupon there ensued the following conversation What have you done with my piece of writing paper, you pilferer? I swear that I have seen no paper, except the bit with which you covered the glass. Your very face tells me that you have made off with it. Why should I make off with it? It would be of no use to me, for I can neither read nor write. You lie. You have taken it away for the sextant to scribble upon. Well... "'If the sexton wanted a paper, he could get some for himself. "'Neither here nor I have set eyes upon your piece. "'Ah, wait a bit for the judgment day. "'You will be roasted by devils on iron spits. "'Just see if you are not.' "'But why should I be roasted, when I have never even touched the paper? "'You might accuse me of any other fault than theft.' "'Nay, the devil shall roast you, sure enough,' they will say to you. "'Bad woman!' We are doing this because you robbed your master. And then stroke up the fire, still hotter. Nevertheless, I shall continue to say, You are roasting me for nothing, for I have stolen nothing at all. Why, there it is, lying on the table. You have been accusing me for no reason whatever. And sure enough, the sheet of paper was lying before Plushkin's very eyes. For a moment or two he chewed silently. Then he went on. Well... And what are you making such a noise about? If one says a single word to you, you answer back with ten. Go and fetch me a candle to seal a letter with. And mind you, bring a tallow candle, for it will not cost so much as the other sort. And bring me a match too. Mavra departed, and Plushkin seating himself and taking up a pen, sat turning the sheet of paper over and over, as though, in doubt, whether to tear from it yet another morsel. At length he came to the conclusion that it was impossible to do so, and therefore dipping the pen into the mixture of moldy fluid and dead flies, which the ink bottle contained, started to indite the letter in characters as bold as the notes of music score, while momentarily checking the speed of his hand, lest it should meander too much over the paper, and crawling from line to line, as though he regretted that there was so little vacant space left on the sheet. "'And you happen to know anyone to whom a few runaway serfs would be of use?' he asked, as subsequently he folded the letter. "'What? You have some runaways as well?' exclaimed Chichikov, again greatly interested. "'Certainly I have. My son-in-law has laid the necessary information against them, but says that their tracks have grown cold. However, he is only a military man, that is to say, good at clicking a pair of spurs, but of no use for laying a plea before a court.' And how many runaways have you? About seventy. Surely not. Alas, yes. Never does a year pass without a certain number of them making off. Yet so gluttonous and idle are my serfs that they are simply bursting with food, whereas I scarcely get enough to eat. I will take any price for them that you may care to offer. Tell your friends about it, and should they find even a score of runaways, I will repay them handsomely seeing that a living serf on the census list is at present worth 500 rubles. Perhaps so, but I'm not going to let anyone but myself have a finger in this, thought Chichikov to himself, after which he explained to Plushkin that a friend of the kind mentioned would be impossible to discover, since the legal expenses of the enterprise would lead to the said friend having to cut the very tail from his coat before he could get clear of the lawyers. Nevertheless, added Chichikov, seeing that you are so hard pressed for money and that I am so interested in the matter, I feel moved to advance you well to advance you such a trifle as would scarcely be worth mentioning. But how much is it? asked Plushkin eagerly, and with his hands trembling like quicksilver. Twenty-five kopecks per soul. What in ready money? Yes, in money down. Nevertheless, consider my poverty, dear friend. And make it forty kopecks per soul. Venerable sir, would that I could pay you not merely forty kopecks, but five hundred roubles. I should be only too delighted if that were possible, since I perceive that you, an aged and respected gentleman, are suffering for your own goodness of heart. By God, that is true, that is true. Plushkin hung his head and wagged it feebly from side to side. Yes. All that I have done I have done purely out of kindness. See how instantaneously I have divined your nature? By now it will have become clear to you why it is impossible for me to pay you 500 rubles per runaway soul. For by now you will have gathered that the fact that I'm not sufficiently rich nevertheless I'm ready to add another 5 kopecks and so to make it that each runaway serf shall cost me in all 30 kopecks. As you please, dear sir. Yet, stretch another point and throw in another two kopecks. Pardon me, but I cannot. How many runaway serfs did you say that you possess? Seventy? No, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight souls at thirty kopecks, each will amount to... to. Only for a moment did our hero halt, since he was strong in his arithmetic will amount to 24 rubles, 96 kopecks. Nevertheless, Chichikov would appear to have erred, since most people would make the sum amount to 23 rubles, 40 kopecks. If so, Chichikov cheated himself of 1 ruble, 56 kopecks. With that, he requested Plushkin to make out the receipt, and then handed him the money. Plushkin took it in both hands, bore it to a bureau with as much caution as as though he were carrying a liquid which might at any moment splash him in the face and arrived at the bureau and glancing around once more carefully packed the cash in one of his money-bags where doubtless it was destined to lie buried until the intense joy of his daughters and his son-in-law and perhaps of the captain who claimed kinship to him he should himself receive burial at the hands of the fathers Scarp and Polycarp, the two priests attached to this village. Lastly, the money concealed, Plushkin resealed himself in the armchair and seemed at a loss for further material for conversation. Are you thinking of starting? At length he inquired on seeing Chijikov making a trifling movement, though the movement was only to extract from his pocket a handkerchief. Nevertheless, the question reminded Chichikov that there was no further excuse for lingering. ''Yes, I must be going,'' he said as he took his hat. ''Then what about the tea?'' ''Thank you. I will have some on my next visit.'' ''What? Even though I have just ordered the samovar to be got ready?'' ''Well, well, I myself do not greatly care for tea, for I think an expensive beverage. Moreover, the price of sugar has risen terribly.'' Prashka! he then shouted. "'The samovar will not be needed. "'Return the sugar to Mavra and tell her to put it back again. "'But no, bring the sugar here, and I will put it back.' Goodbye, dear sir,' finally he added to Chichikov. "'May the Lord bless you. "'Hand that letter to the president of the council and let him read it. "'Yes, he's an old friend of mine. "'We knew one another as schoolfellows.' With that, this strange phenomenon, this withered old man, escorted his guests to the gates of the courtyard, and after the guests had departed, ordered the gates to be closed, made the round of the outbuildings for the purpose of ascertaining whether the numerous watchmen were at their posts, peered into the kitchen, where, under the pretense of seeing whether his servants were being properly fed, he made a light meal of cabbage soup and gruel. Rated the servants soundly for their tivishness and general bad f- behavior, and then returned to his room. Meditating in solitude, he fell to thinking how best he could contrive to recompense his guest for the latter's measureless benevolence. I will present him, he thought to himself, with a watch. It is a good silver article, not one of those cheap metal affairs, and though it has suffered some damage, he can easily get that put right. A young man always needs give a watch to his betrothed. No, he added after further thought, I will leave him the watch in my will, as a keepsake. Meanwhile, our hero was bowing along in high spirit. Such an unexpected acquisition both of dead souls and of runaway serfs had come as a windfall. Even before reaching Plushka's village, he had had a presentiment that he would do successful business there, but not business of such preeminent profitableness as had actually resulted as he proceeded he whistled hummed with hand placed trumpet-wise to his mouth and ended by bursting into a burst of melody so striking that cellophane after listening for a while nodded his head and exclaimed my word but the master can sing by the time they reached the town darkness had fallen and changed the character of the scene The britschka bounded over the cobblestones, and at length turned into the hard courtyard, where the travelers were met by Petrushka. With one hand holding back the tails of his coat, which he never liked to see fly apart, the valet assisted his master to alight. The waiter ran out with a candle in hand and napkin on shoulder. Whether or not Petrushka was glad to see the baron return, it is impossible to say. But at all events, he exchanged a wink with Selifan, and his ordinary morose exterior seemed momentarily to brighten. Then you have been travelling far, sir? said the waiter, as he led the way upstairs. Yes, said Chichikov. What has happened here in the meanwhile? Nothing, sir, replied the waiter, bowing, except that last night there arrived a military lieutenant. He has got room number sixteen. A lieutenant? Yes, he came from Ryazan, driving three grey horses. On entering his room, Chichikov clapped his hand to his nose and asked his valet why he had never had the windows opened. But I did have them opened, replied Petrushka. Nevertheless, this was a lie, as Chichikov well knew, though he was too tired to contest the point. After ordering and consuming a light supper of sucking pig, he undressed, plugged beneath the bedclothes, and sank into the profound slumber which comes only to such fortunate folk as are troubled neither by mosquitoes, nor fleas, nor excessive activity of brain. End of part one, chapter six.
2: Dead Souls by Nikolai Vazirievich Gogol, translated by D.J. Hogarth. Part one, chapter seven section one read by ono simon when chichikov awoke he stretched himself and realized that he had slept well for a moment or two he lay on his back and then suddenly clapped his hands at the recollection that he was now owner of nearly four hundred souls at once he leapt out of bed without so much as glancing at his face in the mirror though as a rule he had much solicitude for his features and especially for his chin of which he would make the most when in company with friends and more particularly should anyone happen to enter while he was engaged in the process of shaving. Look how round my chin is, was his usual formula. On the present occasion, however, he looked neither at chin nor at any other feature, but at once donned his flower embroidered slippers of Morocco leather, the kind of slippers in which, thanks to the Russian love for a dressing gown's existence, the town of Torjuk does such a huge trade. And, clad only in a meagre shirt, so far forgot his elderliness and dignity as to cut a couple of capers after the fashion of a Scottish Highlander, alighting neatly each time on the flat of his heels. Only when he had done that did he proceed to business. Planting himself before his dispatch-box, he rubbed his hands with a satisfaction worthy of an incorruptible rural magistrate when adjourning for luncheon, after which he extracted from the receptacle a bundle of papers. These he had decided not to deposit with a lawyer, for the reason that he would hasten matters, as well as save expense, by himself framing and fair copying the necessary deeds of indenture, and since he was thoroughly acquainted with the necessary terminology, he proceeded to inscribe in large characters the date, and then in smaller ones his name and rank. By two o'clock... The whole was finished, and, as he looked at the sheets of names representing bygone peasants who had ploughed, worked at handicrafts, cheated their masters, fetched, carried, and got drunk, though some of them may have behaved well, there came over him a strange, unaccountable sensation. To his eye, each list of names seemed to possess a character of its own, and even individual peasants therein seemed to have taken on certain qualities peculiar to themselves, for instance, to the majority of Madame Korobotchka's serves, there were appended nicknames and other additions. Plushkin's list was distinguished by a conciseness of exposition which had led to certain of the items being represented merely by Christian name, patronymic, and a couple of dots. And Subakovich's list was remarkable for its amplitude and circumstantiality, in that not a single peasant had such of his peculiar characteristics omitted as that the deceased had been excellent at joinery, or sober and ready to pay attention to his work. Also, in Sabakovich list, there was recorded who had been the father and the mother of each of the deceased, and how those parents had behaved themselves. Only against the name of a certain Theodotov was there inscribed, father unknown, mother the maidservant Kapitolina, morals and honesty good. These details communicated to the document a certain air of freshness, They seemed to connote that the peasants in question had lived but yesterday. As Chichikov scanned the list, he felt softened in spirit, and said with a sigh, My friends, what a concourse of you is here! How did you all pass your lives, my brethren? And how did you all come to depart hence? As he spoke, his eyes halted at one name in particular, that of the same Peter Savilyev Nevajai Korito who had once been the property of the widow Korbochka. Once more, he could not help exclaiming, "'What a series of titles! They occupy a whole line! "'Peter Zaveriev, I wonder whether you were an artisan or a plain muzhik "'Also, I wonder how you came to meet your end, "'whether in a tavern or whether through going to sleep in the middle of the road "'and being run over by a train of wagons. "'Again, I see the name Propka Stepan, carpenter, very sober.' That must be the hero of whom the guards would have been so glad to get hold. How well I can imagine him tramping the country with an axe in his belt and his boots on his shoulder and living on a few groats' worth of bread and dried fish per day and taking home a couple of half-rouble pieces in his purse and sewing the notes into his breeches or stuffing them into his boots. In what manner came you by your end, Pop Castepan? Did you, for good wages... "'Mount a scaffold around the cupola of the village church, "'and, climbing thence to the cross above, "'miss your footing on a beam and fall headlong "'with none at hand but Uncle Mikhai, "'the good uncle who, scratching the back of his neck and muttering, "'Ah, Vanya, for once you've been too clever,' "'straightway lashed himself to a rope and took your place. Maxim Teletnikov, shoemaker.' "'A shoemaker, indeed!' "'As drunk as a shoemaker,' says the proverb. "'I know what you were like, my friend. "'If you wish, I'll tell you your whole history. "'You were apprenticed to a German, "'who fed you and your fellows at a common table, "'thrashed you with a strap, "'kept you indoors whenever you made a mistake, "'and spoke of you in uncomplimentary terms "'to his wife and friends. "'At length, when your apprenticeship was over, "'you said to yourself, "'I'm going to set up on my own account.' And not just to scrape together a coppock here and a coppock there, as the Germans do, but to grow rich quick. Hence, you took a shop at a high rent, bespoke a few orders, and set to work to buy up some rotten leather, out of which you could make, on each pair of boots, a double profit. But those boots split within a fortnight, and brought down upon your head dire showers of maledictions, with the result that gradually your shop grew empty of customers, and you fell to roaming the streets, and exclaiming, "'The world is a very poor place, indeed. "'A Russian cannot make a living for German competition. "'Well, well. "'Elizabeth Vorbein. "'But that is a woman's name. "'How come she to be on the list? "'That villain, Sobakovitch must have sneaked her in without my knowing it.' Grigory "'Gurigurigoyzay Nudoidesh,' he went on. "'What sort of a man were you, I wonder? "'Were you a carrier who, having set up a team of three horses and a tilt-wagon, "'left your home?' your native hovel, forever, and departed to cart merchandise to market. Was it on the highway that you surrendered your soul to God, or did your friends first marry you to some fat, red-faced soldier's daughter, after which your harness and team of rough but sturdy horses caught a highwayman's fancy, and you, lying on your pallet, thought things over until, willy-nilly, you felt that you must get up and make for the tavern, thereafter blundering into an ice-hole. Ah, our peasant of Russia! "'Never do you welcome death when it comes.' "'And you, my friends,' continued Chichikov, turning to the sheet whereon were inscribed the names of Plushkin's absconded serfs. "'Although you are still alive, what is the good of you? You are practically dead. Whither, I wonder, have your fugitive feet carried you? Did you fare hardly at Plushkin's, or was it that your natural inclinations led you to prefer roaming the wilds and plundering travellers? Are you, by this time, in Gaul, or have you taken service with other masters for the tillage of their lands? Hermay Karyakin, Nikita Volokita, and Anton Volokita, son of the foregoing. To judge from your surnames, you would seem to have been born gadabouts. Footnote. The names Karyakin and Volokita might perhaps be translated as galant and loafer. and footnote. Popov household serve. Probably you were an educated man, good Popov, and go in for polite thieving, as distinguished from the more vulgar, cutthroat sort. In my mind's eye, I seem to see a captain of rural police challenging you for being without a passport, whereupon you stake your all upon a single throw.' "'To whom do you belong?' asks the captain, probably adding to his question a forcible expletive. "'To such and such a landowner,' stoutly you reply. "'And what are you doing here?' continues the captain. I've just received permission to go and earn my artwork, is your fluent explanation. Then where's your passport? A mission in Pimenov's. Footnote. Tradesman, or citizen. End footnote. Piminoff's? Then are you Pimenov himself? Yes, I'm Pimenov himself. He has given you his passport? No, he has not given me his passport. Come, come, shouts the captain, with another forcible expletive. You're lying. No, I am not is your dogged reply. It is only that last night I could not return him his passport because I came home late, so I handed it to Antip the bell ringer, for him to take care of. Bell ringer indeed, then he gave you a passport. No, I didn't receive a passport from him either. What? And here the captain shouts another expletive. How dare you keep on lying? Where is your own passport? I had one all right. "'You replied cunningly, but must have dropped it somewhere on the road as I came along. "'And what about that soldier's coat?' asked the captain, with an impolite addition. Whence did you get it? And what about the priest's cash-box and copper money?' "'About them I know nothing,' you replied doggedly. "'Never at any time have I committed a theft.' "'Then how is it that the coat was found at your place?' "'I don't know. Probably someone else put it there.' "'You rascal! You rascal!' shouts the captain, shaking his head, and closing in upon you. "'Put the leg-irons upon him, and off with him to prison.' "'With pleasure,' you reply, as, taking a snuff-box from your pocket, you offer a pinch to each of the two gendarmes who are manacling you, while also inquiring how long they've been discharged from the army, and in what wars they may have served. And in prison, you remain until your case comes on.' When the justice orders you to be removed from Tsarovkokzhaika to such-and-such such another prison, and a second justice orders you to be transferred thence to Vizhjegonsk, or somewhere else, and you go flitting from goal to goal, and saying each time, as you eye your new habitation, the last place was a good deal cleaner than this one is, and one could play babki there, and stretch one's legs, and see a little society. Footnote. "'Babki is the game of knuckle-bones,' and footnote. "'Abakum Tsirov. Chichikov went on after a pause. "'What of you, brother? "'Where and in what capacity are you disporting yourself? "'Have you gone to the Volga country "'and become bitten with a life of freedom "'and joined the fishermen of the river?' "'Here, breaking off, Chichikov relapsed into silent meditation. "'Of what was he thinking as he sat there? "'Was he thinking of the fortunes of Abakum Tsirov? or was he meditating as meditates every Russian when his thoughts once turned to the joys of an emancipated existence? Ah, well, he sighed, looking at his watch. It has now gone twelve o'clock. Why have I so forgotten myself? There is still much to be done, yet I go shutting myself up and letting my thoughts wander. What a fool I am! So saying, he exchanged his Scottish costume, of a shirt and nothing else, for attire of a more European nature, After which he pulled tight the waistcoat over his ample stomach, sprinkled himself with Eau de Cologne, stuck his papers under his arm, took his fur cap, and set out for the municipal offices, for the purpose of completing the transfer of souls. The fact that he hurried along was not due to a fear of being late, seeing that the president of the local council was an intimate acquaintance of his, as well as a functionary who could shorten or prolong an interview at will even as homer's zeus was able to shorten or to prolong a night or a day whenever it became necessary to put an end to the fighting of his favorite heroes or to enable them to join battle but rather to a feeling that he would like to have the affair concluded as quickly as possible seeing that throughout it had been an anxious and difficult business also he could not get rid of the idea that his souls were unsubstantial things and that therefore Under the circumstances, his shoulders had better be relieved of their load with the least possible delay. Pulling on his cinnamon-coloured, bear-lined overcoat as he went, he had just stepped thoughtfully into the street when he collided with a gentleman dressed in a similar coat and an ear-lapeted fur cap. Upon that, the gentleman uttered an exclamation. Behold, it was money-love! At once the friends became folded in a strenuous embrace and remained so locked for fully five minutes... Indeed, the kisses exchanged were so vigorous that both suffered from toothache for the greater portion of the day. Also, Manilov's delight was such that only his nose and lips remained visible. The eyes completely disappeared. Afterwards, he spent about a quarter of an hour in holding Chichikov's hand and chafing it vigorously. Lastly, he, in the most pleasant and exquisite terms possible, intimated to his friend that he had just been on his way to embrace Paul Ivanovitch and upon this followed a compliment of the kind which would more fittingly have been addressed to a lady who was being asked to accord a partner the favour of a dance. Chichikov had opened his mouth to reply, though even he felt at a loss how to acknowledge what had just been said, when Manilov cut him short by producing from under his coat a roll of paper tied with red ribbon. "'What have you there?' asked Chichikov. "'The list of my souls.' "'Ah!' and as Chichikov unrolled the document and ran his eye over it, he could not but marvel at the elegant neatness with which it had been inscribed. It is a beautiful piece of writing, he said. In fact, there will be no need to make a copy of it. Also, it has a border around its edge. Who worked that exquisite border? Do not ask me, said Manilov. Did you do it? No, my wife. Dear, dear, Chichikov cried, to think that I should have put her to so much trouble. Nothing could be too much trouble where Paul Ivanovitch is concerned. Chichikov bowed his acknowledgments. Next, on learning that he was on his way to the municipal offices for the purpose of completing the transfer, Manilov expressed his readiness to accompany him. Wherefore, the pair linked arm in arm and proceeded together. Whenever they encountered a slight rise in the ground, even the smallest unevenness or difference of level, Manilov supported Chichikov with such energy as almost to lift him off his feet, while accompanying the service with a smiling implication that not if he could help it should Paul Ivanovitch slip or fall. Nevertheless, this conduct appeared to embarrass Chichikov, either because he could not find any fitting words of gratitude, or because he considered the proceeding tiresome, and it was with a sense of relief that he debouched upon the square where the municipal officers a large three storied building of a chalky whiteness, which probably symbolized the purity of the souls engaged within, was situated. No other building in the square could vie with them in size, seeing that the remaining edifices consisted only of a sentry box, a shelter for two or three cabmen, and a long hoarding, the latter adorned with the usual bills, posters, and scrawls in chalk and charcoal. At intervals from the windows of the second and third stories of the municipal offices, the incorruptible heads of certain of the attendant priests of Themis would peer quickly forth and as quickly disappear again, probably for the reason that a superior official had just entered the room. Meanwhile the two friends ascended the staircase, nay, almost flew up it, since, longing to get rid of Manilov's ever-supporting arm, Chichikov hastened his steps and Manilov kept darting forward to anticipate any possible failure on the part of his companion's legs. Consequently, the pair were breathless when they reached the first corridor. In passing, it may be remarked that neither corridors nor rooms evinced any of that cleanliness and purity which marked the exterior of the building, for such attributes were not troubled about within, and anything that was dirty remained so, and donned no meretricious, purely external disguise it was as though Themis received her visitors in negligee and a dressing-gown. The author would also give a description of the various offices through which our hero passed, were it not that he, the author, stands in awe of such legal haunts. End of Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 1
3: Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D.J. Hogarth Part One, Chapter 7, Section 2 Approaching the first desk which he happened to encounter, Chichikov inquired of the two young officials who were seated at it, whether they would kindly tell him where business relating to serf indenture was transacted. "'Of what nature, precisely, is your business?' countered one of the youthful officials as he turned himself round. "'I desire to make an application. "'In connection with the purchase?' "'Yes.' But as I say, I should like first to know where I can find the desk devoted to such business. Is it here or elsewhere? You must state what it is you have bought and for how much. Then we shall be happy to give you the information. Chuchikov perceived that the official's motive was merely one of curiosity, as often happens when young Chinovnik desired to cut a more important and imposing figure than is rightfully theirs. Look here, young sirs, he said. I know for a fact that all surf business, no matter to what value, is transacted at one desk alone. Consequently, I again request you to direct me to that desk. Of course, if you do not know your business, I can easily ask someone else." To this, the Chinovniks made no reply beyond pointing towards a corner of the room where an elderly man appeared to be engaged in sorting some papers. Accordingly, Chichikov and Manilov Threaded their way in his direction through the desks, whereupon the elderly man became violently busy. Would you mind telling me, said Chichikov, bowing, whether this is the desk for serf affairs? The elderly man raised his eyes and said stiffly, This is not the desk for serf affairs. Where is it then? In the serf department. And where might the serf department be? In charge of Ivan Antonovitch. And where is Ivan Antonovitch? The elderly man pointed to another corner of the room, whither Chichikov and Manilov next directed their steps. As they advanced, Ivan Antonovich cast an eye backwards and viewed them askance. Then, with renewed ardor, he resumed his work of writing. "'Would you mind telling me,' said Chichikov, bowing, "'whether this is the desk for serf affairs?' It appeared as though Ivan Antonovich had not heard, so completely did he bury himself in his papers and return no reply. Instantly it became plain that he was at least of an age of discretion, and not one of your jejun chatterboxes and harem scarums For, although his hair was still thick and black, he had long ago passed his fortieth year. His whole face tended towards the nose. It was what, in common parlance, is known as a pitcher-mug. Would you mind telling me, repeated Chichikov, whether this is the desk for surf affairs? That it is said Ivan Antonovich, again lowering his jug-shaped jowl and resuming his writing. Then I should like to transact the following business. From various landowners in this canton I have purchased a number of peasants for transfer. Here is the purchase-list, and it needs but to be registered. Have you also the vendors here? Some of them. And from the rest I have obtained powers of attorney. And have you your statement of application? Yes. I desire, indeed it is necessary for me to do so, to hasten matters a little. Could the affair, therefore, be carried out through today? Today? Oh, dear no, said Ivan Antonovich. Before that can be done, you must furnish me with further proofs that no impediments exist. Then, to expedite matters, let me say that Ivan Gregorievich, the president of the council, is a very intimate friend of mine. "'Possibly,' said Ivan Antonovich, without enthusiasm. "'But Ivan Grigoryevich alone will not do. "'It is customary to have others as well. "'Yes, but the absence of others will not altogether invalidate the transaction. "'I too have been in the service and know how things can be done.' "'You had better go and see Ivan Grigoryevich,' said Ivan Antonovich more mildly. "'Should he give you an order addressed to whom it may concern, "'we shall soon be able to settle the matter.' Upon that, Chichikov pulled from his pocket a paper, and laid it before Ivan Antonovich. At once, the latter covered it with a book. Chichikov again attempted to show it to him, but with a movement of his head, Ivan Antonovich signified that it was unnecessary. A clerk, he added, will now conduct you to Ivan Grigoryevitch's room. Upon that, one of the toilers in the service of Themis, a zealot who offered her such heartfelt sacrifices that his coat had burst at the elbows and lacked a lining escorted our friends even as virgil had once escorted dante to the apartment of the presence in this sanctum were some massive armchairs a table laden with two or three fat books and a large looking-glass lastly in apparently sunlike isolation there was seated at the table the president on arriving at the door of the apartment Our modern Virgil seemed to have become so overwhelmed with awe, that, without daring even to intrude a foot, he turned back, and, in doing so, once more exhibited a back as shiny as a mat, and, having adhering to it, in one spot, a chicken's feather. As soon as the two friends had entered the hall of the Presence, they perceived that the President was not alone, but, on the contrary, had seated by his side Sobakovich, whose form had hitherto been concealed by the intervening mirror. The newcomer's entry evoked sundry exclamations, and the pushing back of a pair of government chairs, as the voluminous-sleeved Sobakevitch rose into view from behind the looking-glass. Chichikov the President received with an embrace. And for a while, the Hall of the Presence resounded with osculatory salutations, as mutually the pair inquired after one another's health. It seemed that both had lately had a touch of that pain under the waistband which comes from a sedentary life. Also, it seemed that the President had just been conversing with Sobakevitch on the subject of sales of souls, since he now proceeded to congratulate Chichikov on the same, a proceeding which rather embarrassed our hero, seeing that Manilov and Sobakevitch, two of the vendors, and persons with whom he had bargained in the strictest privacy, were now confronting one another direct." However, Chichikov duly thanked the president, and then, turning to Sobakevich, inquired after his health. "'Thank God I have nothing to complain of,' replied Sobakevich, which was true enough, seeing that a piece of iron would have caught a cold and taken to sneezing, sooner than would that uncouthly-fashioned landowner. "'Ah, yes, you have always had good health, have you not?' put in the president. "'Your late father was equally strong. Yes, he even went out bear-hunting alone," replied Sobakovich. "'I think that you, too, could worse a bear if you were to try a tussle with him,' rejoined the President. "'Oh, no!' said Sobakovich. "'My father was a stronger man than I am.' Then with a sigh, the Speaker added, "'But nowadays there are no such men as he. What is even a life like mine worth?' "'Then you do not have a comfortable time of it!' exclaimed the President. "'No, far from it,' rejoined Sobakevitch, shaking his head. "'Judge for yourself, Ivan Grigoryevitch. I am fifty years old, yet never in my life had been ill, except for an occasional carbuncle or boil. That is not a good sign. Sooner or later I shall have to pay for it.' And he relapsed into melancholy. "'Just listen to the fellow,' was Chichikov's and the president's joint inward comment. "'What on earth has he to complain of?' I have a letter for you, Ivan Grigoryevich," went on Chichikov aloud, as he produced from his pocket Plushkin's epistle. From whom? inquired the president. Having broken the seal, he exclaimed, why, it is from Plushkin! To think that he is still alive! What a strange world it is! He used to be such a nice fellow, and now—and now he is a cur," concluded Sobakevitch, as well as a miser who starves his serfs to death. Allow me a moment said the President, and then he read the letter through. When he had finished, he added, Yes, I am quite ready to act as Plushkin's attorney. When do you wish to purchase deeds to be registered, Monsieur Chichikov? Now or later? And now, if you please, replied Chichikov. Indeed, I beg that, if possible, the affair may be concluded to day, since tomorrow I wish to leave the town. I have brought with me both the forms of indenture and my statement of application. Very well. Nevertheless, we cannot let you depart so soon. The indentures shall be completed today, but you must continue your sojourn in our midst. I will issue the necessary orders at once." So saying, he opened the door into the general office, where the clerks looked like a swarm of bees around a honeycomb, if I may liken affairs of government to such an article. "'Is Ivan Antonovich here?' asked the President. "'Yes,' replied a voice from within. "'Then send him here.' Upon that, the pitcher faced Ivan Antonovitch made his appearance in the doorway and bowed. Take these indentures, Ivan Antonovitch, said the president, and see that they-but first I would ask you to remember, put in Sobakevitch, that witnesses ought to be in attendance, not less than two on behalf of either party. Let us therefore send for the public prosecutor, who has little to do, and has even that little done for him by his chief clerk, Zolotucha. The inspector of the medical department is also a man of leisure and likely to be at home, if he has not gone out to a card party. Others also there are, all the men who cumber the ground for nothing. Quite so, quite so, agreed the president, and at once dispatch a clerk to fetch the person's named. Also, requested Chichikov, I should be glad if you would send for the accredited representative of a certain lady landowner with whom I have done business." He is the son of a Father Cyril, and a clerk in your offices. Certainly we shall call him here, replied the President. Everything shall be done to meet your convenience, and I forbid you to present any of our officials with a gratuity. That is a special request on my part. No friend of mine ever pays a copper. With that, he gave Ivan Antonovich the necessary instructions, and though they scarcely seemed to meet with that functionary's approval, Upon the president, the purchased deeds had evidently procured an excellent impression, more especially since the moment when he had perceived the sum total to amount to nearly a hundred thousand rubles. For a moment or two, he gazed into Chichikov's eyes with an expression of profound satisfaction. Then he said, Well done, Paul Ivanovitch. You have indeed made a nice haul. That is so, replied Chichikov. Excellent business, yes, excellent business. I too conceived that I could not well have done better. The truth is that never until a man has driven home the piles of his life, structure upon the lasting bottom, instead of upon the wayward chimeras of youth, will his aims in life assume a definite end. And, that said, Chichikov went on to deliver himself a very telling indictment of liberalism and our modern young men. Yet, in his words, there seemed to lurk a certain lack of conviction. Somehow he seemed secretly to be saying to himself, "'My good sir, you are talking the most absolute rubbish.' "'And nothing but rubbish. "'Nor did he even throw a glance at Sobakevitch and Manilov.' "'It was as though he were uncertain what he might not encounter in their expression. "'Yet he need not have been afraid. "'Never once did Sobakevitch's face move a muscle. "'And, as for Manilov... He was too much under the spell of Chichikov's eloquence to do aught beyond nod his approval at intervals, and strike the kind of attitude which is assumed by lovers of music when a lady singer has, in rivalry of an accompanying violin, produced a note whereof the shrillness would exceed even the capacity of a bird's throstle. "'But why not tell Ivan Gorgorievitch precisely what you have bought?' inquired Sobakevitch of Chichikov. And why, Ivan Grgoryevich? "'Do you not ask Monsieur Chichikov precisely what his purchases have consisted of?' "'What a splendid lot of serfs, to be sure. "'I myself have sold him my wheelwright, Michiev.' "'What? "'You have sold him Michiev?' exclaimed the president. "'I know the man well. "'He is a splendid craftsman, and on one occasion made me a droshki, "'a sort of low four-wheeled carriage. "'Only—only, well, lately didn't you tell me that he is dead?' that Michiev is dead," re-echoed Sobakovich, coming perilously near to laughing. Oh, dear, no! That was his brother. Michiev himself is very much alive, and in even better health than he used to be. Any day he could knock you up a britchka such as you could not procure even in Moscow. However, he is now bound to work for only one master. Indeed, a splendid craftsman," repeated the President. My only wonder is that you can have brought yourself to part with him then think you that Michiev is the only serf with whom I have parted? Nay, for I have parted also with Probka Stepan, my carpenter, with Melushkin, my bricklayer, and with Telyatnikov, my bootmaker. Yes, the whole lot I have sold." And to the president's inquiry why he had so acted, seeing that the serfs named were all skilled workers and indispensable to a household, Sobakevitch replied that a mere whim had led him to do so and thus the sale had owned its origin to a piece of folly. Then he hung his head as though already repenting of his rash act, and added, Although a man of grey hairs, I have not yet learned wisdom. But, inquired the President further, how comes it about, Paul Ivanovich, that you have purchased peasants apart from land? Is it for transferment elsewhere that you need them? Yes. Very well, then, that is quite another matter. To what province of the country? to the province of Kurson. "'Indeed! That region contains some splendid land,' said the president, whereupon he proceeded to expatiate on the fertility of the Kurson pastures. "'And have you much land there?' he continued. "'Yes, quite sufficient to accommodate the serfs whom I have purchased.' "'And is there a river on the estate, or a lake?' "'Both.' After this reply, Chichikov involuntarily threw a glance at Sobakovich. And though the landowner's face was as motionless as ever, the others seemed to detect in it, You liar. Don't tell me that you own both river and a lake, as well as the land which you say you do. Whilst the foregoing conversation had been in progress, various witnesses had been arriving on the scene. They consisted of the constantly blinking public prosecutor, the inspector of the medical department, and others. All, to quote Sobakevitch men who cumbered the ground for nothing. With some of them, however, Chichikov was altogether unacquainted, since certain substitutes and supernumeraries had to be pressed into the service from among the ranks of the subordinate staff. There also arrived, in answer to the summons, not only the son of Father Cyril before mentioned, but also Father Cyril himself. Each witness appended to his signature a full list of his dignities and qualifications one man in printed characters, another in flowing hand, a third in topsy-turvy characters of a kind never before seen in the Russian alphabet, and so forth. Meanwhile, our friend Ivan Antonovich comported himself with not a little address, and after the indentures had been signed, docketed, and registered, chichikov found himself called upon to pay only the merest trifle in the way of government percentages and fees for publishing the transaction in the official gazette the reason of this was that the president had given orders that only half the usual charges were to be exacted from the present purchaser the remaining half being somehow debted to the account of another applicant for serf registration and now said ivan gregoryevich when all was completed we need only to wet the bargain For that, too, I am ready, said Chichikov. Do you but name the hour. If, in return for your most agreeable company, I were not to set a few champagne corks flying, I should indeed be in default. But we are not going to let you charge yourself for anything whatsoever. We must provide the champagne, for you are our guest, and it is for us, it is our duty, it is our bounden obligation, to entertain you. Look here, gentlemen, let us adjourn to the house of the chief of police. He is the magician who needs but to wink when passing a fishmonger's or a wine merchant's. Not only shall we fare well at his place, but also we shall get a game of whist. To this proposal, no one had any objections to offer, for the merest mention of the fish shop aroused the witnesses' appetite. Consequently, the ceremony being over, there was a general reaching for hats and caps as the party were passing through the general office, Ivan Antonovich whispered in Chichikov's ear, with the courteous inclination of his jug-shaped physiognomy, You have given a hundred thousand roubles for the serfs, but have paid me only a trifle for my trouble. Yes, replied Chichikov with a similar whisper, but what sort of serfs do you suppose them to be? They are a poor useless lot, and not worth even half the purchase money. This gave Ivan Antonovich to understand that the visitor was a man of strong character, a man from whom nothing more was to be expected. "'Why have you gone and purchased souls from Plushkin?' whispered Sobakevitch in Chichikov's other ear. "'Why did you go and add the woman Voroboy to your list?' retorted Chichikov. "'Voroboy? Who is Voroboy?' "'The woman Elizabeth Voroboy.' Elizabeth, not Elizabeta.' I added no such name." replied Sobakevitch, and straightway joined the other guests. At length the party arrived at the residence of the chief of police. The latter proved indeed a man of spells, for no sooner had he learnt what was afoot than he summoned a brisk young constable, whispered in his ear, adding laconically, You understand, do you not? and brought it about that, during the time that the guests were cutting for partners, at whist in an adjoining room, The dining table became laden with sturgeon, caviar, salmon, herrings, cheese, smoked tongue, fresh roe, and a potted variety of the same, all procured from the local fish market, and reinforced with additions from the host's own kitchen. The fact was that the worthy chief of police filled the office of a sort of father and general benefactor to the town and that he moved among the citizens as though they constituted a part and parcel of his own family, and watched over their shops and markets as though those establishments were merely his own private larder. Indeed, it would be difficult to say, so thoroughly did he perform his duties in this respect, whether the post most fitted him, or he the post. Matters were also so arranged that though his income more than doubled that of his predecessors, he had never lost the affection of his fellow townsmen. In particular did the tradesmen love him, since he was never above standing godfather to their children, or dining at their tables. True, he had differences of opinion with them, and serious differences at that, but always these were skillfully adjusted by his slapping the offended ones jovially on the shoulder, drinking a glass of tea with them, promising to call at their houses and play a game of chess, asking after their belongings, and, should he learn that a child of theirs was ill. Prescribing the proper medicine. In short, he bore the reputation of being a very good fellow. On perceiving the feast to be ready, the host proposed that his guests should finish their whist after luncheon, whereupon all proceeded to the room whence, for some time past, an agreeable odor had been tickling the nostrils of those present, and towards the door of which Sobakevitch, in particular, had been glancing since the moment when he had caught sight. Of a huge sturgeon reposing on the sideboard. After a glassful of warm, olive colored vodka apiece, vodka of the tent to be seen only in the species of Siberian stone whereof seals are cut. The company applied themselves to knife and fork work, and, in doing so, evinced their several characteristics and tastes. For instance, Sobakovich, disdaining lesser trifles, tackled the large sturgeon and during the time that his fellow guests were eating minor comestibles, and drinking and talking, contrived to consume more than a quarter of the whole fish, so that, on the host remembering the creature, and, with fork in hand, leading the way in its direction and saying, What, gentlemen, think you of this striking product of nature? There ensued the discovery that of the said product of nature there remained little beyond the tail, tale, while with an air as though at least he had not eaten it, was engaged in plunging his fork into a much more diminutive piece of fish, which happened to be resting on an adjacent platter. After his divorce from the sturgeon, Sobakevitch ate and drank no more, but sat frowning and blinking in an armchair. Apparently the host was not a man who believed in sparing the wine, for the toasts drunk were innumerable. The first toast, as the reader may guess, was quaffed to the health of the new landowner of Kherson, the second to the prosperity of his peasants and their safe transferment, and a third to the beauty of his future wife, a compliment which brought to our hero's lips a flickering smile. Lastly, he received from the company a pressing, as well as an unanimous, invitation to extend his stay in town for at least another fortnight, and, in the meanwhile, to allow a wife to be found for him, Quite so, agreed the President. Fight us tooth and nail, though you may. We intend to have you married. You have happened upon us by chance, and you shall have no reason to repent of it. We are in earnest on this subject. But why should I fight you tooth and nail? said Chichikov, smiling. Marriage would not come amiss to me, were I but provided with a betrothed. Then a betrothed you shall have. Why not? We will do as you wish. Very well, assented Chichikov. Bravo! Bravo! the company shouted. Long live Paul Ivanovitch! Hurrah! Hurrah! And with that, everyone approached to clink glasses with him, and he readily accepted the compliment, and accepted it many times in succession. Indeed, as the hours passed on, the hilarity of the company increased yet further, and more than once the president, a man of great urbanity went thoroughly in his cups, embraced the chief guest of the day with the heartfelt words, My dearest fellow, my own most precious of friends. Nay, he even started to crack his fingers, to dance around Chichikov's chair, and to sing snatches of a popular song. To the champagne succeeded Hungarian wine, which had the effect of still further heartening and enlivening the company. By this time, everyone had forgotten about Whist, and given himself up to shouting and disputing. Every conceivable subject was discussed, including politics and military affairs, and in this connection guests voiced jejun opinions for the expressions of which they would, at any other time, have soundly spanked their offspring. Chichikov, like the rest, had never before felt so gay and, imagining himself really and truly to be the landowner of Kherson, spoke of various improvements in agriculture, of the three-field system of tillage. Begin footnote. The system by which, in annual rotation, two-thirds of a given area are cultivated, while the remaining third is left fallow, End footnote. and of the beatific felicity of a union between two kindred souls. Also, he started to recite poetry to Sobakevitch, who blinked as he listened, for he greatly desired to go to sleep. At length, the guests of the evening realized That matters had gone far enough, so begged to be given a lift home, and was accommodated with the public prosecutor's drozhki. Luckily, the driver of the vehicle was a practiced man at his work, for, while driving with one hand, he succeeded in leaning backwards and, with the other, holding Chichikov securely in his place. Arrived at the inn, our hero continued babbling a while about a flaxen-haired damsel with rosy lips and a dimple in her right cheek about villages of his in Kherson, and about the amount of his capital. Nay, he even issued signoral instructions that Selifan should go and muster the peasants about to be transferred, and make a complete and detailed inventory of them. For a while, Selifan listened in silence, then he left the room, and instructed Petrushka to help the baron to undress. As it happened, Chichikov's boots had no sooner been removed, then he managed to perform the rest of his toilet without assistance, to roll onto the bed, which creaked terribly as he did so, and to sink into sleep in every way worthy of a landowner of Kherson. Meanwhile, Petrushka had taken his master's coat and trousers of bilberry-colored check into the corridor, where, spreading them over a clothes's horse, he started to flick and to brush them, and to fill the whole corridor with dust just as he was about to replace them in his master's room he happened to glance over the railing of the gallery and saw Selifan returning from the stable glances were exchanged and in an instant the pair had arrived at an instinctive understanding an understanding to the effect that the baron was sound asleep and that therefore one might consider one's own pleasure a little accordingly petrushka proceeded to restore the coat and trousers to their appointed places and then descended the stairs whereafter he and Celifan left the house together. Not a word passed between them as to the object of their expedition. On the contrary, they talked solely of extraneous subjects. Yet their walk did not take them far. It took them only to the other side of the street, and thence into an establishment which immediately confronted the inn. Entering a mean, dirty courtyard covered with glass, they passed thence into a cellar where a number of customers were seated around small wooden tables. What, thereafter, was done by Salifan and Petrushka, God alone knows. At all events, within an hour's time they issued, arm in arm, in profound silence, yet remained markedly assiduous to one another, and ever ready to help one another around an awkward corner, still linked together, never once releasing their mutual hold. They spent the next quarter of an hour in attempting to negotiate the stairs of the inn, but at length even that ascent had been mastered, and they proceeded further on their way. Halting before his mean little pallet, Petrushka stood a while in his thought. His difficulty was how best to assume a recumbent position. Eventually, he laid down on his face, with his legs trailing over the floor, after which Selifan also stretched himself upon the pallet with his head resting upon Petrushka's stomach, and his mind wholly oblivious to the fact that he ought not have been sleeping there at all, but in the servants' quarters, or in the stable beside his horses. Scarcely a moment had passed before the pair were plunged in slumber, and emitting the most raucous snores, to which their master, next door, responded with snores of a whistling and nasal order. Indeed, before long, everyone in the inn had followed their soothing example and the holstery lay plunged in complete restfulness. Only in the window of the room of the newly arrived lieutenant from Riazon did a light remain burning. Evidently, he was a devotee of boots, for he had purchased four pairs, and was now trying on a fifth. Several times he approached the bed with a view to taking off the boots and retiring to rest, but each time he failed. For the reason that the boots were so alluring in their make, that he had no choice but to lift up first one foot, and then the other, for the purpose of scanning their elegant welts. End of Part 1 Chapter 7
4: Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D. J. Hogarth Part 1 Chapter 5 Section 2 Read by Ewan Baylis This is my wife, Theodulia Ivanovna, said Sobakovich. Chichikov approached and took her hand. The fact that she raised it nearly to the level of his lips apprised him of the circumstances that it had just been rinsed in cucumber oil. My dear... Allow me to introduce Paul Ivanovich Chichikov, added Sobakevitch. He has the honour of being acquainted with both our governor and with our postmaster. Upon this, Theodulia Ivanovna requested her guest to be seated and accompanied the invitation with the kind of bow usually employed only by actresses who are playing the role of queens next she took a seat upon the sofa drew around her her merino gown and sat thereafter without moving an eyelid or an eyebrow as for chichikov he glanced upwards and once more caught sight of canaris with his fat thighs an interminable moustache and of bobolina and the blackbird for fully five minutes all present preserved the complete silence. The only sound audible being that of the blackbird's beak against the wooden floor of the cage as the creature fished for grains of corn. Meanwhile, Chichikov again surveyed the room and saw that everything in it was massive and clumsy in the highest degree, as also that everything was curiously in keeping with the master of the house. For example, in one corner of the apartment, there stood a hazelwood bureau with a bulging body on four grotesque legs, the perfect image of a bear. Also, the tables and the chairs were of the same ponderous, unrestful order, and every single article in the room appeared to be saying either, I too am a Sabakovich or... I am exactly like Sobakovitch. "'I heard speak of you one day "'when I was visiting the president of the council,' said Chichikov, "'on perceiving that no one else "'had a mind to begin a conversation. "'That was on Thursday last. "'We had a very pleasant evening.' "'Yes, on that occasion I was not there,' "'replied Sobakovich. "'What a nice man he is!' ''Who is?'' inquired Sabakovich, gazing into the corner by the stove. ''The president of the local council.'' ''Did he seem so to you?'' ''True, he is a mason, but he is also the greatest fool that the world ever saw.'' Chichikov started a little at this mordant criticism, but soon pulled himself together again and continued of course every man has his weakness yet the president seems to be an excellent fellow and do you think the same of the governor yes why not because there exists no greater rogue than he what the governor a rogue ejaculated chichikov at a loss to understand how the official in question could come to be numbered with thieves let me say that i should never have guessed it Permit me also to remark that his conduct would hardly seem to bear out your opinion. He seems so gentle a man. And in proof of this, Chichikov cited the purses which the governor knitted, and also expiated on the mildness of his features. He has the face of a robber, said Sobakevitch. Were you to give him a knife and to turn him loose on a turnpike, he would cut your throat for two kopecks. And the same with the vice-governor. The pair are just Gog and Magog. Evidently, he is not on good terms with them, thought Chichikov to himself. I had better pass on to the chief of police, with whom he does seem to be friendly. Accordingly, he added aloud, for my own part, I should give the preference to the head of the gendarmerie what a frank outspoken nature he has and what an element of simplicity does his expression contain he is mean to the core remarked Sabakovitch coldly he will sell you and cheat you and then dine at your table yes i know them all and every one of them is a swindler and the town a nest of rascals engaged in robbing one another Not a man of the lot is there, but would sell Christ. Yet stay, one decent fellow there is, the public prosecutor, though even he, if the truth be told, is little better than a pig. After these eulogia, Chichikov saw that it would be useless to continue running through the list of officials. More especially since suddenly he had remembered that Sobakevitch was not at any time "'given to commending his fellow man. "'Let us go to luncheon, my dear,' "'put in Theodulia Ivanovna to her spouse. "'Yes, pray come to table,' said Sobakevitch to his guest, "'whereupon they consumed the customary glass of vodka, "'accompanied by sundry snacks of salted cucumber and other dainties, "'with which Russians, both in town and country, preface a meal.' Then they filed into the dining room, in the wake of the hostess, who sailed on ahead like a goose swimming across a pond. The small dining table was found to be laid for four persons, the fourth place being occupied by a lady or a young girl, it would have been difficult to say which exactly, who might have been either a relative, the housekeeper, or a casual visitor. Certain persons in the world exist, not as personalities in themselves, but as spots or specks on the personalities of others. Always they are to be seen sitting in the same place, and holding their heads at exactly the same angle, so that one comes within an ace of mistaking them for furniture, and thinks to oneself that never since the day of their birth can they have spoken a single word. "'My dear,' said Sobakevitch. The cabbage soup is excellent. With that, he finished his portion and helped himself to a generous measure of nyanya. Footnote. Literally, nursemaid. and the footnote. The dish which follows chi and consists of a sheep's stomach stuffed with black porridge, brains and other things. What nyanya this is, he added to Chichikov. "'Never would you get such stuff in a town "'where one is given the devil knows what. "'Nevertheless, the governor keeps a fair table,' said Chichikov. "'Yes, but do you know what all the stuff is made of?' retorted Sabakovitch, "'If you did know, you would never touch it.' "'Of course I am not in a position to say how it is prepared, "'but at least the pork cutlass and the boiled fish seemed excellent. "'Ah, it might have been thought so, "'yet I know the way in which such things are bought in the marketplace. "'They are bought by some rascal of a cook "'whom a Frenchman has taught how to skin a tomcat "'and then serve it up as hare. Er, uh, what horrible things you say!' put in, madame. Well, my dear, that is how things are done, and it is no fault of mine that it is so. Moreover, everything that is left over, everything that we, pardon me for mentioning it, cast into the slop pail, is used by such folk for making soup. Always at table, you begin talking like this, objected his helpmeet. And why not, said Zabakovich i tell you straight that i would not eat such nastiness even had i made it myself sugar a frog as much as you like but never shall it pass my lips nor would i swallow an oyster for i know only too well what an oyster may resemble but have some mutton friend chichikov it is a shoulder of mutton and very different stuff from the mutton which they cook in noble kitchens mutton which has been kicking about the marketplace four days or more. All that sort of cookery has been invented by French and German doctors and I should like to hang them for having done so. They go and prescribe diet and a hunger cure as though what suits their flaccid German systems will agree with a Russian stomach. Such devices are no good at all. Sobakovich shook his head wrathfully fellows like those are forever talking of civilization as if that sort of thing was civilization phew perhaps the speaker's concluding exclamation would have been even stronger had he not been seated at table for myself I will have none of it when I eat pork at a meal give me the whole pig when mutton, the whole sheep, when goose, the whole of the bird. Two dishes are better than a thousand, provided that one can eat of them as much as one wants. And he proceeded to put precept into practice by taking half the shoulder of mutton onto his plate, and then devouring it down to the last morsel of gristle and bone. ''My word,'' reflected Chichikov, ''the fellow has a pretty good holding capacity.'' ''None of it for me,'' repeated Sobakevitch as he wiped his hands on his napkin. ''I don't intend to be a fellow named Plushkin, who owns 800 souls, yet dines worse than does my shepherd.'' ''Who is Plushkin?'' asked Chichikov. ''A miser,'' replied Sobakevitch. Such a miser as never you could imagine. Even convicts in prison live better than he does. And he starves his servants as well. Really? ejaculated Chichikov, greatly interested. Should you then say that he has lost many peasants by death? Certainly. They keep dying like flies. Then how far from here does he reside? About five versts. Only five firsts, exclaimed Chichikov, feeling his heart beating joyously. Ought one, when leaving your gates, to turn to the right or to the left? I should be sorry to tell you the way to the house of such a cur, said Sabakovich. A man had far better to go to hell than to plushkins. Quite so, responded Chichikov. My only reason for asking you is that it interests me to become acquainted with any and every sort of locality. To the shoulder of mutton there succeeded, in turn, cutlets each one larger than a plate, a turkey of about the size of a calf, eggs, rice, pastry and every conceivable thing which could possibly be put into a stomach. There the meal ended. When he rose from table Chichikov felt as though a pood's weight were inside him. In the drawing room, the company found dessert awaiting them, in the shape of pears, plums and apples, but since neither host nor guest could tackle these particular dainties, the hostess removed them to another room. Taking advantage of her absence, Chichikov turned to Sabakovitch, who, prone in an armchair, seemed after his ponderous meal, to be capable of doing little beyond belching and grunting. Each such grunt or belch necessitated a subsequent signing of the cross over the mouth, and intimated to him a desire to have a little private conversation concerning a certain matter. At this moment the hostess returned. "'Here is more dessert,' she said. "'Pray have a few radishes stewed in honey.' Later, later, replied Sabakovitch, do you go to your room, and Paul Ivanovitch and I will take off our coats and have a nap. Upon this the good lady expressed her readiness to send for feather beds and cushions, but her husband expressed a preference for slumbering in an armchair, and she therefore departed. When she had gone, Sobakovich inclined his head in an attitude of willingness to listen to Chichikov's business. Our hero began in a sort of detached manner, touching lightly upon the subject of the Russian Empire, and expatiating upon the immensity of the same, and saying that even the Empire of ancient Rome had been of considerably smaller dimensions. Meanwhile, Sobakovich sat with his head drooping. From that, Chichikov went on to remark that, according to the statutes of the said Russian Empire, which yielded to none in glory, so much so that foreigners marvelled at it, peasants on the census lists who had ended their earthly careers were nevertheless, on the rendering of new lists, returned equally with the living to the end that the courts might be relieved of a multitude of trifling useless emendations which might complicate the already sufficiently complex mechanism of the state. Nevertheless, said Chichikov, the general equity of this measure did not obviate a certain amount of annoyance to landowners, since it forced them to pay, upon a non-living article, the tax due upon a living. Hence, our hero concluded. He, Chichikov, was prepared, owing to the personal respect which he felt for Sobakovitch, to relieve him, in part, of the irksome obligation referred to. In passing, it may be said that Chichikov referred to his principal point only guardedly, for he called the souls which he was seeking not dead, but non-existent. Meanwhile, Sobakovich listened with bent head, though something like a trace of expression dawned in his face as he did so. Ordinarily, his body lacked a soul, or, if he did possess a soul, he seemed to keep it elsewhere than where it ought to have been, so that, buried beneath mountains, as it were, or enclosed within a massive shell, its movements produced no sort of agitation on the surface. ''Well?'' said Chichikov, though not without a certain tremor of diffidence as to the possible response. ''You are after dead souls?'' were Sobakevitch's perfectly simple words. He spoke without the least surprise in his tone, and much as though the conversation had been turning on grain. ''Yes?'' replied Chichikov, and then, as before, softened down the expression ''dead souls.'' They are to be found, said Sobakevitch. Why should they not be? Then, of course, you will be glad to get rid of any that you may have chance to have. Yes, I shall have no objection to selling them. At this point, the speaker raised his head a little, for it had struck him that surely the would-be buyer must have some advantage in you. The devil... "'thought Chichikov to himself. "'Here is he, selling the goods "'before I have even had time to utter a word. "'And what about the price?' he added aloud. "'Of course, the articles are not of a kind "'very easy to appraise.' "'I should be sorry to ask too much,' said Sobakevitch. "'How would a hundred roubles per head suit you?' "'What, a hundred roubles per head?' Chichikov stared open-mouthed at his host, doubting whether he had heard aright, or whether his host's slow-moving tongue might not have inadvertently substituted one word for another. "'Yes.' "'Is that too much for you?' said Sobakevitch. "'Then he added, "'What is your own price?' "'My own price? "'I think that we cannot properly have understood one another.' That you must have forgotten of what the goods consist. With my hand on my heart, do I submit that eight scribes per soul would be a handsome, a very handsome offer. What eight scribes? In my opinion, a higher offer would be impossible. But I am not a seller of boots. No, yet you, for your part, will agree that these souls are not live human beings. I suppose you hope to find fools ready to sell you souls on the census list for a couple of groats apiece? Pardon me, but why do you use the term on the census list? The souls themselves have long since passed away, and have left behind them only their names. Not to trouble you with any further discussion of the subject, I can offer you a ruble and a half per head, but no more. You should be ashamed even to mention such a sum. Since you deal in articles of this kind, quote me a genuine price. I cannot, Michael Semenovich. Believe me, I cannot. What a man cannot do, that he cannot do. The speaker ended by advancing another half-ruble per head. ''But why hang back with your money?'' said Sabakovitch. ''Of a truth, I am not asking much of you. Any other rascal than myself would have cheated you by selling you old rubbish instead of good genuine souls, whereas I should be ready to give you of my best, even were you buying only nut kernels. For instance, look at Wheelwright Michieff never was there such a one to build spring carts and his handiwork was not like your moscow handiwork good only for an hour no he did it all himself even down to the varnishing chichikov opened his mouth to remark that nevertheless the said mitchieff had long since departed this world but Sabakovitch's eloquence "'had got too thoroughly into its stride "'to admit of any interruption. "'And look, too, at Probka Stepan, the carpenter,' "'his host went on. "'I will wager my head that nowhere else "'would you find such a workman. "'What a strong fellow he was. "'He had served in the guards, "'and the Lord only knows what they had given for him, "'seeing that he was over three arshins in height.' again chichikov tried to remark that probka was dead but Sobakevitch's tongue was borne on the torrent of its own verbiage and the only thing to be done was to listen and milushkin the bricklayer he could build a stove in any house you liked and maxim teleyapnikov the bootmaker anything that he drove his all into became a pair of boots and boots for which you would be thankful although he was a bit foul of the mouth, and Aramy Sola too. He was the best of the lot and used to work at his trade in Moscow, where he paid a tax of 500 roubles. Well there's an assortment of serfs for you, a very different assortment from what Plushkin would sell you. But permit me, at length put in Chichikov astounded at this flood of eloquence to which there appeared to be no end permit me I say to inquire why you enumerate the talents of the deceased seeing that they are all of them dead and that therefore there can be no sense in doing so a dead body is only good to a fence with says the proverb of course they are dead replied Sobakevitch, but rather as though the idea had only just occurred to him of course they are dead, replied Sobakovich, but rather as though the idea had only just occurred to him, and was giving him food for thought. But tell me now, what is the use of listing them as still alive? And what is the use of them themselves? They are flies, not human beings. Well, said Chichikov, they exist, though only an idea. But no. "'not only an idea. "'I tell you that nowhere else would you find such a fellow "'for working heavy tools as was Mityaev. "'He had the strength of a horse in his shoulders.' "'And with the words, Sabakovitch turned, "'as though for corroboration to the portrait of Bagration, "'as is frequently done by one of the parties in a dispute "'when he purports to appeal to an extraneous individual.' who is not only unknown to him, but wholly unconnected with the subject in hand, with the result that the individual is left in doubt whether to make a reply, or whether betake himself elsewhere. Nevertheless, I cannot give you more than two roubles per head, said Chichikov. Well... As I don't want you to swear that I have asked too much of you and won't meet you halfway, suppose for friendship's sake that you pay me 75 roubles in assignats. Good heavens, thought Chichikov to himself, does the man take me for a fool? Then he added aloud, the situation seems to me a strange one, for it is as though we were performing a stage comedy. "'no other explanation would meet the case. "'Yet you appear to be a man of sense "'and possessed of some education. "'The matter is a very simple one. "'The question is, what is a dead soul worth, "'and is it of any use to anyone?' "'It is of use to you, "'or you would not be buying such articles.' "'Chichikov bit his lip "'and stood at a loss for a retort.' He tried to saying something about family and domestic circumstances, but Sobakovitch cut him short with, I don't want to know your private affairs, for I never poke my nose into such things. You need the souls, and I am ready to sell them. Should you not buy them, I think you will repent it. Two rubles is my price, repeated Chichikov. come, come. As you have named that sum, I can understand your not liking to go back upon it, but quote me a bona fide figure. The devil fly away with him, mused Chichikov. However, I will add another half-rouble, and he did so. Indeed, said Sobakevitch. Well, my last word upon it, fifty roubles in a synyats. "'that will mean a sheer loss to me, "'for nowhere else in the world "'could you buy better souls than mine.' "'The old skin flint,' muttered Chichikov. "'Then he added aloud, with irritation in his tone, "'See here, this is a serious matter. "'Anyone but you would be thankful "'to get rid of the souls. "'Only a fool would stick to them "'and continue to pay the tax.' "'Yes, but remember,' and I say it wholly in a friendly way, that transactions of this kind are not generally allowed, and that any one would say that a man who engages in them must have some rather doubtful advantage in view. Have it your own way, said Chichikov, with assumed indifference. As a matter of fact, I am not purchasing for profit, as you suppose, but to humour a certain whim of mine two and a half roubles is the most that I can offer. bless your heart, retorted the host, at least give me thirty roubles in a signet and take the lot. No, for I see that you are unwilling to sell. I must say good day to you. Hold on, hold on, exclaimed Sobakevitch, retaining his guest's hand and at the same moment treading heavily upon his toes. "'so heavily, indeed, that Chichikov gasped and danced with the pain. "'I beg your pardon,' said Savakovich hastily. "'Evidently, I have hurt you. Pray sit down again.' "'No,' retorted Chichikov. "'I am merely wasting my time and must be off.' "'Oh, sit down just for a moment. "'I have something more agreeable to say.' "'And, drawing closer to his guest. Sobakevitch whispered in his ear, as though communicating to him a secret. "How about twenty-five roubles?" "No, no, no!" exclaimed Chichikov. "I won't give you even a quarter of that. I won't advance another kopeck." For a while, Sobakevitch remained silent, and Chichikov did the same. This lasted for a couple of minutes, and meanwhile the aquiline nosed back for a while Sabakovitch remained silent and chichikov did the same this lasted for a couple of minutes and meanwhile the aquiline nosed bagration gazed from the wall as though much interested in the bargaining what is your outside price at length said Sobakevitch two-and-a-half roubles. Then, you seem to rate a human soul at about the same value as a boiled turnip. At least give me three roubles. No, I cannot. Pardon me, but you are an impossible man to deal with. However, even though it will mean a dead loss to me, and you have not shown a very nice spirit about it, I cannot well refuse to please a friend. "'I suppose a purchase deed had better be made out in order to have everything in order?' "'Of course. "'Then, for that purpose, let us repair to the town.' "'The affair ended in their deciding to do this on the morrow "'and to arrange for the signing of a deed of purchase. "'Next, Chichikov requested a list of the peasants, "'to which Sobakovich readily agreed.' Indeed, he went to his writing desk then and there, and started to indict a list, which gave not only the peasants names, but also their late qualifications. Meanwhile, Chichikov, having nothing else to do, stood looking at the spacious form of his host, and as he gazed at his back as broad as that of a cart-horse, and at the legs as massive as the iron standards which adorn a street... "'he could not help inwardly ejaculating. "'Truly God has endowed you with much. "'Though not adjusted with nicety, "'at least you are strongly built. "'I wonder whether you were born a bear, "'or whether you have come to it through your rustic life, "'with its tilling of crops and its trading with peasants? "'Yet, no. "'I believe that, even if you had received a fashionable education, "'and had mixed with society,' and had lived in Saint Petersburg, you would still have been just the kulak footnote, village factor or usurer end of footnote, that you are. The only difference is that circumstances as they stand permit of your polishing off of a stuffed shoulder of mutton at a meal, whereas in Saint Petersburg you would have been unable to do so. Also as circumstances stand you have under you a number of peasants whom you treat well for the reason that they are your property whereas otherwise you would have had under you chinoviks footnote subordinate government officials end of footnote whom you would have bullied because they were not your property also you would have robbed the treasury since a kulak always remains a money grubber. The list is ready, said Sabakovich, turning round. Indeed? Then please let me look at it. Chichikov ran his eye over the document, and could not but marvel at its neatness and accuracy. Not only were there set forth in it the trade, the age, and the pedigree of every serf "'but on the margin of the sheet were jotted remarks "'concerning each serf's conduct and sobriety. "'Truly it was a pleasure to look at it.' "'And do you mind handing me the earnest money?' said Sobakevitch. "'Yes, I do. Why need that be done? "'You can receive the money in a lump sum as soon as we visit the town.' "'But it is always the custom, you know,' asserted Sobakevitch then i cannot follow it for i have no money with me however here are ten roubles ten roubles indeed you might as well hand me fifty while you are about it once more chichikov started to deny that he had any money upon him but Sobakevitch insisted so strongly that this was not so that at length the guest pulled out another fifteen roubles "'and added them to the ten already produced. "'Kindly give me a receipt for the money,' he added. "'A receipt? Why should I give you a receipt?' "'Because it is better to do so in order to guard against mistakes.' "'Very well, but first hand me over the money.' "'The money? I have it here. "'Do you write out the receipt, and then the money shall be yours?' "'Pardon me.' But how am I to write out the receipt before I have seen the cash? Chichikov placed the notes in Sobakevitch's hand, whereupon the host moved nearer to the table, and added to the list of serfs a note that he had received for the peasants, therewith sold, the sum of twenty-five roubles as earnest money. This done, he counted the notes once more, This is a very old note, he remarked, holding one up to the light. Also, it is a trifle torn. However, in a friendly transaction, one must not be too particular. What a kulak, thought Chichikov to himself, and what a brute beast. Then, you do not want any women's souls, queried Sobakevitch. I thank you, no. "'I could let you have some cheap,' say, as between friends, at a rouble a head. "'No, I should have no use for them.' "'Then, that being so, there is no more to be said. "'There is no accounting for tastes. "'One man loves the priest, and another the priest's wife,' says the proverb. "'Chichikov rose to take his leave. "'Once more I would request of you,' he said.' that the bargain be left as it is. Of course, of course, what is done between friends holds good because of their mutual friendship. Goodbye, and thank you for your visit. In advance, I would beg that, whenever you should have an hour or two to spare, you will come and lunch with us again. Perhaps we might be able to do one another further service. Not if I know it, reflected Chichikov, as he mounted his britchka, not I seeing that I have had two and a half roubles per soul squeezed out of me by a brute of a kulak altogether, he felt dissatisfied with Sabakovitch's behaviour, in spite of the man being a friend of the Governor and the chief of police, he had acted like an outsider in taking money for what was worthless rubbish. As the britchka left the courtyard, Chichikov glanced back and saw Sobakevitch still standing on the veranda apparently for the purpose of watching to see which way the guest's carriage would turn. The old villain to be still standing there muttered Chichikov through his teeth after which he ordered Selifan to proceed so that the vehicle's progress should be invisible from the mansion. The truth being, that he had a mind next to visit Plushkin, whose serfs, to quote Sabakovitch had a habit of dying like flies, but not to let his late host learn of his intention. Accordingly, on reaching the further end of the village, he hailed the first peasant whom he saw "'a man who was in the act of hoisting a ponderous beam onto his shoulder "'before setting off with it, and like, to his hut. "'Hi!' shouted Chichikov. "'How can I reach landowner Plushkin's place "'without first going past the mansion here?' "'The peasant seemed nonplussed by the question. "'Don't you know?' queried Chichikov. "'No, Baron,' replied the peasant. "'What?' You don't know skinflint plushkin who feeds his people so badly? Of course I do, exclaimed the fellow, and added thereto an uncomplimentary expression of a species not ordinarily employed in polite society. We may guess that it was a pretty apt expression, since long after the man had become lost to view, Chichikov was still laughing in his britchka, and indeed, the language of the Russian populace is always forcible in its phraseology. End of part one, chapter five.